This talk was given by Prabhu Gikhan Vasan at Zen Mountain Monastery. Gikhan is a senior lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about our retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everyone. My name is Gikhan, and um, I was asked to offer the talk today because uh, Shugen Roshi, who's the abbot of this monastery and who would um, normally be giving the talk, is, is not feeling well. Um, so good morning. Good morning to all of you. Good morning to everybody who's joining us out there online. So this was an, an, an intro to um, Zen Training Weekend. And I was fortunate enough to be able to spend the weekend here. And um, it was really lovely. Um, I don't recall much about my ZTW. It, it was quite a while back. Um, but I do recall just the wonderful feeling of kind of stepping into a space that I was completely unfamiliar with, forms, practices, and really um, that I was totally unfamiliar with. And really just getting a taste, right? Getting a taste of what um, Zen practice in a, in a, in a monastery it was like, right, all the different areas of training and practice, and it was unfamiliar, it was tantalizing, it was, um, I was curious, I was resistant, I was awkward all the time, like from start to finish, and, and how good I felt at, at the end of it. So um, it was great spending this weekend with, with so many of you um, and having conversations and um, learning more about you, and I, I hope you found it helpful. Uh, really, um, in whatever way you, you need to be helped, I, I hope it was helpful. You know, in thinking about what, um, what I should talk about for a, for a weekend um, of introductory training, I, I thought I would talk a little bit about some of the uh, teachings that I encountered very early on in my own practice, right? maybe in the first year or so of practicing, um, and just in the ways that they were helpful to me. You know, the, the, the Buddha's teachings are often referred to as a raft, right? a raft to help us cross the sea of suffering. Um, these teachings I'm going to mention um, function more, functioned more like life preservers for me. Right? When um, my life was difficult, when spiritual practice was difficult, these helped to kind of keep me from drowning, right? keep me buoyant. So I like to offer them in, in that spirit. No path, no wisdom, and no gain. No gain. And thus the Bodhisattva lives Prajna Paramita with no hindrance in the mind. No hindrance, therefore no fear. This is a line from the Heart Sutra, which we chanted this morning, we chanted yesterday morning for those of you who are here. It's probably the most chanted sutra I would imagine in Mahayana Buddhism, um, chanted throughout the world. Um, in various translations, iterations. And this is from kind of towards the end of it, right? This is after that long passage, which is, I think, is probably what sticks with most people, um, where the Heart Sutra basically wipes out everything. No eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, no color, sound, smell, taste, touch, phenomena, no realm of sight, no realm of consciousness, no ignorance and no end to ignorance, no old age and death and no end to old age and death, no suffering, no cause of suffering, no path, no wisdom, and no gain. Pow! Whatever thing you got, 
it's pretty much just taking care of it right there, right? When we chant it, I sort of feel like sometimes like it's galloping at that moment, right? Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of compassion, who is saying all of this in the Heart Sutra, is like on a horse, just like galloping through our world, right? So one of the basic um, observations of the Buddha is that the ways we approach our lives, the ways we understand and cope with our lives, make sense of our lives, um, not so much that they're flawed, but they're, they're based on flawed premises. And as such, they become very limited ways of getting through our life. I remember early on, I don't know where I read this, but I definitely read this um, someplace where it says that from a Buddhist point of view, all of the great achievements that we value so much, philosophy, psychology, literature, art, all of that takes place just on the surface level of the mind. When I read that, I was just, I was outraged. I was like, bullshit, right? I mean, I was like floored. It's one of those things I read, and I was just brought to a stop. Because this really was getting at everything that I thought would be like the foundation of my life, right? I was um, in grad school studying clinical social work. I had been in therapy for a long time. I was very deeply involved in the study of poetry. You know, I was, I was um, involved in, in the study of art. I mean, hell, I, I won the philosophy award in high school. Okay, senior year, yes, right? <laughs> so it's kind of like, you know, basically like, you know, yeah. So like all of that, it was basically saying, all of it was just on the surface level of my mind, right? I didn't want to hear that, right? Because I remember I kept a journal back then, and I remember writing, like, all these things I'm doing. I said, I, I really think, like, this is it. Like, if I just continue doing this stuff, I will really get to some, to some basic truths about myself and about the world. And this is saying, nope, sorry. Right? It's all on the surface level. And, you know, I was outraged, but I got it. But I had to admit, yeah, Despite all of that, or in the middle of all that, something was missing. And all that stuff was good, right? None of that stuff was bad. It was all good. And there was something that it wasn't hitting. Something was being left out. No gain, no hindrance, therefore no fear. When I first began practicing and encountered the Heart Sutra, I had no idea what it was talking about. I mean, I lived in midtown Manhattan, and I take the bus to a little bit below Chinatown to where I worked. And on my bus ride, I decided to memorize the Heart Sutra. Right, so on my bus ride, I used it back, and I'd be memorizing it. I had no idea what I was memorizing. You know, prajna paramita, no idea. F- emptiness, really no idea. And it just got worse, right? Because then it stopped being English, right? It's not like Anitara Sarak Sambodhi. What was that? And that little thing at the end, gate, gate, paraga. I really had no idea. So I, I didn't know what it was talking about, but I got this. I got this. Right, that little passage which I sort of truncated to no gain, thus no hindrance, therefore no fear. That, when I read it, it landed with me. I got it because I got fear. I got fear. So for those just starting out, you know, if you encounter teachings, which you will, that are, seem really difficult and really like over your head or really you don't get it, one way to work with this is to find one little phrase that lands. Right? And to sort of use that. Right? Start with that. Right? I got fear. Because I was afraid. I was afraid of a lot. And as I worked with this, I I sort of, you know, began to sort of realize how much I was afraid, right? I was afraid of saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, afraid of failing in different parts of my life as a 
kind of a newly minted clinical social worker. I was afraid every single session I walked into, I was going to like mess somebody up really bad. Um, I was afraid of my emotions, right? Knowing that they could lead me into really bad places because they had done that, right? I was afraid of my mind, knowing what it could do, right? So I got that. Um, and what this seemed to be saying is that, you know, number one, there's, there's a, a way not to be that way. And it pointed out the reasons why I would be afraid, right? If you sort of reverse engineer this, right? Fear, so underlying that is hindrance, and underlying that is gain. Right? So I began to work with this. Right? So just a very recent example, I was asked to give this talk on very, very short notice. <laughs> Basically, I walked in here Friday evening, and Gokhan sort of hovered over to me and said, Shugan is out sick, we'd like you to give the talk, right? And I had my deer-in-the-headlight moment, right? For those of you who don't know, we're usually given far more notice than this. Um, and I was deer-in-the-headlights, right? I was like, uh, I, I was thinking, can I say no? In, in any way that would preserve any sense of dignity, can I say no to this request, right? Um, and it was funny, I, I later asked Shoan, um, have you ever been asked to like, give a talk with like, no notice at all? And I was thinking, you know, he's given like hundreds of talks. I figured she said, oh yeah, of course, and I'd be reassured. She thought about it and she goes, no, I can't recall a time when I've been asked to give a talk with no notice. Like, Thank you, Shoan. <laughs> that was helpful. Um, you know, but it was helpful, right? Because that means it was just me, right? By myself, right? With this fear. So, you know, let's just reverse this, right? What was the hindrance? Right? The hindrances in Buddhism are certain specific mental states that give rise um, to, to fear and, and other obstructions. One of them is doubt, right? It was always full of doubt. You know, uh, can I do this? Right? I've never given a talk on this short of notice, right? I, I, I can't do this, right? No way. That, I just don't know how to do this, right? And what was right underneath that? It was gain. Gain in the sense of, you know, I have to deliver, in such a way, right? I have to look in such a way to the people I'm speaking with, to the people online, right? The people, you know, they're seniors in white robes who are going to be hearing this, right? They're, you know, I got to impress them, right? My, you know, they're senior monastics here, right? They're going to see through everything I say and realize it's all bullshit, right? I can't let that happen, you know? All of this, right? You know, the poet William Stafford was once asked, how does he advise people who have writer's block? And he said, I tell them, if you get stuck, lower your standards. <laughs> Right? Yeah. There's, there's something to be said for that, right? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I remember when I read that, I'm like, really? Like, like how does that work? You know, but yeah, you know, this is a, a Pulitzer Prize winning poet who said this, right? Yeah. So, you know, that's what this practice encourages us to do, right? Whatever we've set up, right? Whatever standard, whatever piece of gain we have, to notice it to notice what it does to our lives. And sometimes you have to start from the other end, right? You have to start from the fear, right? From whatever is viscerally coming up in the moment and then kind of backtrack it. What is happening in my mind right now? And what is the underlying assumption giving rise to that thing? You know, um, Richard Hugo, another poet who I like very much, once said that there's two kinds of poets, right? This is a kind who feels that they are the right thing in a wrong world, and the kind that feels that they're a wrong thing in a right world. Right? 
that's true for about all the poets I've read. Um, but I think it's a, it's, it's a useful construct in, in general, right? Because what it says is that fundamentally, we generally um, see ourselves in opposition to the world, right? There is, there is a problem someplace, right? Fundamentally, and either the problem is in me or it's out there in, in all of you, right? But fundamentally, there, there is a problem. And that problem has to be fixed for me to have a life of contentment and for me to be able to move through the world in a safe, kind of secure way. And that sort of brings me to my next you know, life preserver, which really helped me. This is from the book Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Um, I'm not sure if people really read this anymore, but it was a real kind of treasured book when, when I was sort of in, into this practice. And it was written by Shunryu Suzuki, who's a foundational teacher of, of Zen, certainly in this country, founder of Tassajara Zen Center, uh, Zen Center of, of San Francisco. And in one part, he just said very simply, in your very imperfections, you will find the basis for your firm, way-seeking mind. When I read this, and this was one of the first books I read when, when I started Zen practice, that's what, I just read it over and over, and it kind of just seared itself into my, into my head. Because this was a different way than I had ever looked at the parts of me that I thought were wrong. Right? And you know, I had to read it a few times. You know, he, he, and I realized he wasn't saying, you know, despite your imperfections, you'll get the basis for your way-seeking mind. Or, you know, once you work through your imperfections, you'll get it. Or even though you've got imperfections, you'll still have your way. So I'm saying, in. In your very imperfections. You'll find the basis for your firm way-seeking mind. That's important to keep in mind. Right? Because otherwise, we will continue to do in practice what we do everywhere else. Right? Which is to try to view ourselves as, or view everything that we don't think is ourselves as somehow in conflict, and that one or the other has to be fixed. You know, the, the, the Buddha did this, right? In, when he was talking about his early years of practice, he said, and about how he practiced, he said, you know, I, I beat down, constrained, and crushed my mind with my mind. Just as a strong man might seize a weaker man by the head or shoulders and beat him down, constrain him and crush him, so too I beat um, down, constrained, and crushed my mind with my mind. You know, it's interesting to think that if this were actually happening between two people in this way, we'd call it assault. Right? This is what the Buddha was doing to himself. He was weaponizing himself against himself, thinking that that was spiritual practice. Right? Thinking that this is how he was going to advance on the path of practice. Right? And to an extent, it worked. Right? To an extent, that way of living works. Right? We see that maybe in ourselves. We see that in the state of governance in the world at large. For the Buddha, he said, you know, by doing this, um, I did establish mindfulness. He was able to do it successfully, right? He beat up his mind with his mind, and he was able to arrive at a state of mindfulness. But he said, my body was overwrought and strained. I was exhausted by this painful striving. Right? So it works, but it works very, very provisionally, right? Because it is exhausting. Certainly as a therapist, I've seen this, right? I've seen people come in exhausted, not so much by their, you know, whatever mental illness they, they might have been diagnosed with, right? Depression, schizophrenia, whatever, but by their efforts to somehow 
fix what they thought was wrong with themselves or to fix what they thought was wrong with the world or the people around them. Right? And they sort of arrive, you know, exhausted and strained. In your very imperfections, you will find the basis for your firm, way-seeking mind. Much later, I encountered a teaching by Dogen, who is a 12th century Zen teacher and probably one of the pivotal teachers of Zen, certainly one of the foundational teachers of of this order. And he said, um, liberation means in life you're liberated from life, in death you're liberated from death. Okay, so... That's, that's big, it's tough, right? How do we work with this? Let's set aside life and death for right now and make it really real. Liberation means in that shitty day at work, you're liberated from that shitty day of work. In the bad mood you have because your partner said something that you didn't like, you're liberated from that bad mood that you had. Your partner said something you didn't like. Notice the key word here, and in the Shunryu Suzuki quote, is in. In your very imperfections, in your life, in your death, in your bad day at work, in your bad period of zazen, in the pain in your knee as you're sitting, you are liberated from that, right? The word is in. One thing I have found out as I've been practicing is that you know, this is a practice of being in. Right? Being in, 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 in. Um, and the forms are set up for this. You know, there's, there's not a lot of opportunity. You know, I once asked um, Yukon, who's one of our monastics, um, you know, what does it mean to be a monastic, I asked him. And he said, basically, you know, you, you stop saying no. He stopped saying no. That's pretty much what he said to me, right? I think another way of saying that is that you're, you're all in. Right? And we get a taste of that, right, in, when we step in, 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 when we step in. We're in a matrix, right? We're asked to follow a schedule that keeps us in, even when we want very much to be out, right? And if you've done a long-term retreat here, you know what that means, right? I just want to get out, right? I want to get out of this period of sitting. I want to just get out of this retreat altogether. I want to get out of whatever state I happen to be in. And the fact that we're here, it says, no, no, you're, you're in. You're in. And that's all you need to be is in but in all the way. Right? If there's any little part of you that's sticking out, that's the part of you that's going to cause suffering. right? Because that's the part of you that you're going to have to deal with, and we usually deal with that part badly if we're not bringing it in. Right? So why is this? Why does it have to be this? In, in some ways, if you think about it, and the more I practice, the more I realize, you know, it, it kind of has to be this way. right? But, but why is that? This is a, a short clip from a, a, a writing by Pema Chodron, um, her book, When Things Fall Apart. For those of you who don't know, Pema Chodron's a Tibetan teacher, and I think it's safe to say she's probably one of the most beloved Buddhist teachers right, around. Um, I love her. Um, I, I read this book very early in my Zen practice um, when I was really going through a lot of um, depression and, and emotional difficulty. You know, my life was falling apart, so here's a book, When Things Fall Apart. I'm like, oh, well, you know, <laughs> I guess I should pick this up. This probably has something relevant for me. Um, and she says, you know, things don't really get solved. They come apart, they come together and they fall apart. Then they come together and fall apart again. 
It's just like that. The healing comes from letting there be room for all of this to happen. That's why, in some ways, it has to be this way, right? That's why that approach of, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, weaponizing ourselves to one degree or another against the parts of ourselves or the parts of others that we feel are wrong. That's why it can't work, right? That's why, you know, identifying, you know, who's the problem here or who's the problem in here and how do I take care of it? That's why it, it, can't, it doesn't work because it can't work because reality doesn't work that way, right? Yes, th- there are lots of problems and there's lots, lots to be done, right? There's, and, and there's good work that needs to be done for physical well-being, mental well-being, environmental well-being, the well-being of the earth, all of it, right? But if we do that on a foundation that everything can be solved, right? We're going to be trapped because it, it, it hasn't worked, right? If, 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 if that was the way to do things, as Shugan sometimes said, we'd be living in paradise right now, right? Because that's how we've been doing it, right? We would have solved stuff permanently, right? But clearly we haven't. I like the fact that, that she uses the word healing. You know, the healing comes, right? Instead of insight or wisdom or enlightenment, she uses healing, right? It's a much more basic word, right? And I think it's a word that we all can relate to. I think many of us, maybe most of us, enter practice, um, maybe not so much for wisdom or enlightenment, even though we might say those words. We enter because we need to be healed right, on some level, right? We enter... Um, you know, Miyotai Sensei once said, you know, some people enter through uh, suffering, some people enter through joy. When I heard that, I'm like, who are these people who enter through joy? <laughs> Jerks, you know? <laughs> yeah. Definitely enter through the side of suffering, right? Yeah. Um, but even people who enter through joy, I imagine that if it was just joy all the way through, they wouldn't need to enter here, right? They would just be joyful, Right? They wouldn't need this, right? So even then, I imagine there's something in there that maybe isn't quite joyful, right? That they need to, they need to, they need to heal. So how do we heal? By letting there be room for all of this to happen. Right? By letting there be room for reality. And again, this is another way of saying being in. Right? Being in, but being in in a way that's spacious. Right? Um, in other meditation traditions, you know, they, they talk about like the witness, you know, being able to sort of step back and sort of witness your experience. We don't talk about that much, at least not that I found of the witness in Zen practice. You know, thinking back over, you know, whatever, 20-something years of practice, I don't recall ever hearing too much about the witness, maybe a couple of times, right? We don't talk about that. Um, and I think it's because, you know, in, in, in this practice, you know, there's, there's no bystanders. Right? There's no part of you that's standing by watching the rest of your practice or the rest of your mind happen, right? Maybe provisionally, yeah, when you're counting the breath, there's a need to sort of stabilize and being able to watch the breath, right? But as we work with this and as it deepens, you know, we, we, we first we drop the count, for those of you who are new here. And then we actually even just come closer than that, right? To where we're really just being the breath. Where it's just breath all the way through. I remember when I was working early on in, in koan study, given my first koan, I sort of told Shugen Roshi in, in, in private teaching, 
And then, you know, the way I was working with this, you know, I was kind of holding the koan out here and just really like, like watching it. And he said, no, don't, don't work with it that way. And he was very emphatic about this. He said, you know, that is still keeping you separate from it. You know, he goes, you have to go in it. Right? And I so think maybe there's a real emphasis in this practice on that. Right? Yes, it is important to cultivate a basic degree of witnessing, right? So that, you know, uh, so, so then we're not sort of like just caught in like the whirlpool, right? That we're not sort of just caught in like the turbulence of our mind and the turbulence of our thoughts, you know? But once we sort of get that basic stability, it's come closer, right? Notice how even that stability, right? Which is a good thing, right? Notice the distance even there. And that process of cultivating stability, noticing distance, cultivating it more, noticing distance, that is probably, you know, I think, at least for me, how my practice has gone. Right? Really getting to the place where I can get closer, right, to my experience, closer to my awareness, and then noticing how there's still distance there. And then just working with that, and getting a little bit closer, working with that, letting it get closer, and noticing how that functions out there in the world. Right? When things throw me off, which they absolutely do, right? Noticing that, right? And noticing how maybe I can get a little bit closer to some raw emotions without ask, acting out on it. Maybe I can develop a little bit more stability, but then noticing, okay, well, there's still distance there. Right? How can I even get a little bit closer? Right? So this is a practice of slowly by degrees going in. And I think, you know, it, it really is based on the basic notion of, you know, your fundamental perfection. You know, in her opening remarks um, for the, the weekend, Shoan talked about the, this image of the jewel in Mahayana Buddhism, right? that there is a jewel that we all have. Right? We might call it Buddha nature, our true nature, our luminous mind. But there's a jewel. Right? And that jewel is often covered by dust. And much of practice is just, you know, polishing in order to let that jewel shine forth. Right. Again, in some ways, it has to be this way, right? Because if we're fundamentally, if there wasn't a jewel there, right? Fundamentally, if there was like, you know, like, like a heap of crap there, right? We 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 wouldn't go. We shouldn't go in, right? It's like you know, avoid it, right? When you go really in, it's going to be really bad, right? So don't go in, you know. Um, so in some ways, it has, this practice has to be based on a reality that's recognized as being inherently perfect and on people, you guys, me, that are based in inherent perfection. Right? That's the only way it makes sense to go in, go into our experience. So I want to... Um, So I want to close with the final life preserver. And this is from the Eight Gates of Zen. This was written by our founder, Daido Roshi. Um, and if you, if you were here for the weekend, you got a copy of it. I, I really encourage you to read it, even if, even if you're totally done with the Zen stuff, which is fine, right? Even if you're like, like forget it, I'm out of here, I can't wait. Read it anyway. You know, it's okay, right? It, it, read it anyway. He says... Um, whether you accomplish yourself or not, whether you realize yourself or not, whether you continue as a Zen student or not, all that is irrelevant so long as you maintain Zazen. As long as the practice of Zazen is alive in your life, the life and the realization of the Buddha are manifesting in your life, whether you realize it or not. 
again, this is something that I encountered, you know, early on, probably around my Zen training weekend when I was given a copy of this. And again, I, I read it so much that I just memorized it and it stayed with me all the way through, right? And I think it's especially meaningful because it, it's coming from the person who founded all of this, right? Founded a path of practice where there is accomplishment, right? We have uh, 10 ox herding pictures in the dining hall, right? Each first stage of Zen practice, right? We have um, stages of training. We have robes that mean different things, right? We have, we have hierarchy, right? We have, um, we, 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 Dido has hundreds of talks where he talks about and really the, the need to realize ourselves, right? The person who put all that together also said this, right? And I love this because I think ultimately what he wants to leave us with is this fundamental practice of sitting still, sitting straight, and looking inside, right? Going in. You know, a number of years ago, I, I made a trip to India with my wife and my mom, and we actually went to Varanasi, where the Buddha gave his first, his first discourse, right? the first turning of the Dharma wheel. Um, it's, it's, a, you know, it's a big stupa, and it's a big site of pilgrimage. And there were all these little, like, like stupas, like lots of them. And as i kind of walking around, every one of them had little relief carvings of people in seated meditation, right? Hundreds of them. And these, and, and, you know, this goes back probably thousands of years, right? Or, you know, in New York City in the Met, there's that big stella of the Vimalakirti Sutra, right? It's, it's like massive. But if you look on the sides and in the back, again, row after row after row after row of reliefs of figures in seated meditation, right? Cross-legged, straight back. This is a practice that stretches back through millennia, right? Wherever we are in our lives, wherever we are in terms of coming to terms with ourselves in this world, I, I think we can trust this practice because it has been around for so long. And so many thousands of people over thousands of years have done exactly what we're doing and what you guys did this weekend, right? Sitting straight, sitting still, and looking inside, and seeing, seeing what there is, seeing what parts of ourselves we don't want to see, right? seeing what the mind does not to see, right? seeing how the mind can take a perfectly simple thing like the breath and veer into all manner of narrative, thoughts, thoughts about thoughts, feelings about feelings. As someone said when I was talking to them, you know, cages around our cages as opposed to simply staying with what there is, the breath. Right? We can notice all of that, and we can come back. So, I'll just leave with a, um, well, I think that's enough. So, um, again, thank you. Uh, thank you for everybody for the really great conversations this weekend. It was very helpful for me, and I hope this weekend was, was helpful for you as well. Uh, thank you. Thank you for your attention, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.